Okay, so we are going to continue tonight in the book of Isaiah. So go go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 16. Isaiah chapter 16. And I figured we would continue on in Isaiah. And there's so much good stuff to glean from this chapter. So much good news. So many doctrines that are going to give us understanding about the Lord and about what He's doing in history. And it's going to strengthen our faith in Him. Uh, Now, before we jump in, we need to remember uh, what this section is. Uh, It starts with the 15th chapter, and it goes through the 16th chapter, and it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy of God's judgment against Moab, who is another one of the enemies of the people of God. And we need to remember what the 15th chapter was concerned with. It was concerned with the devastation of, that God's judgment would bring to Moab because of her rebellion against him. In fact, the devastation would be so bad, so severe, and so many people would be injured and killed that in verse 5 of chapter 15, Isaiah says, My heart cries out for Moab. So that he was even feeling compassion for these nasty and evil enemies of the church who persecuted the church so badly, he was even feeling compassion. That's how bad it's going to be. And this brings up a really good point in our own lives today. As we look at the enemies of the church right now, we have plenty of enemies of the church right now. Uh, And the point is, is that we must, as the church, both rejoice and grieve at the fall of our enemies. We can't only rejoice, we can't only grieve, but we can learn from the book of Isaiah that we must do both. And and we'll see that more as we get into it. Uh, We can rejoice whenever we see God bringing all of the enemy's efforts to an end, and we can grieve whenever we see these people experience so much pain and suffering. And uh, now we, as we come to the 16th chapter, he begins in verse 5, or at least in the first five verses, by offering salvation to the Moabites. He's being gracious to the Moabites. He's offering salvation. They deserve to be condemned. They deserve to be punished. And they deserve the wrath of Almighty God. And he said he was going to do it, but now he gives them the opportunity to repent. And so you have this wonderful, this beautiful invitation to the people of Moab to turn from their sin and put their faith in God. Uh, And if they do that, they'll be saved from the judgment that he said would come. Uh, And and when we understand the Old Testament terminology you find in verses 1 through 4, you you find one of the clearest presentations in the whole Bible on how to become a Christian. It's very interesting. We don't see these. Uh, We don't see this sort of thing on uh, gospel tracts. We don't see these sort of things in altar calls. We don't see Isaiah chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. It seems very obscure. Uh, But here is the way. Here is how each and every one of us, if we're Christians, this is how we become Christians, uh, whether we know this or not, in these words. Check this out. Verses 1 through 4. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. And when the oppressor is no more, and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. And so God is saying that all of these things are going to happen to Moab if they accept God's invitation to repent of their sin and turn to Christ. If you accept his invitation, destruction is going to go away. Uh, The oppressor is going to disappear. Uh, And what was that invitation again? Look at verse 1. What is it? Send the ruler of the lamb. Right. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. Right. And as we said last week, it could also be translated as a tribute lamb. Right. Send the tribute lamb. Uh, That's faith in action. That's what faith looks like in action. Believing on Christ 
is sending the tribute lamb to the ruler of the lamb. And sending a tribute lamb to the ruler of the land means two specific things. Number one, this is a very covenantal action. Um, It is the duty of a vassal to a lord. It's a covenantal offering. Uh, It's a tribute. It's essentially saying to the king, look, I submit to the terms of the peace treaty that you're offering me. I'll do whatever you tell me. I'll bring everything I have for you to use in my life, and you can use it all. You can use all that I own as you please. Uh, I will no longer stand in opposition to you. I'm not going to rebel against you any longer. I'm not going to resist you any longer. I'm going to now stand for you. I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to work for you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to do everything so that you may be glorified and honored. And I am submitting to you as your servant. That's what bringing a tribute lamb is. And that's what faith is. Surrendering to the rule of God in your life. But to bring a lamb to the ruler of the land, that means you need an atonement, right? All of this suggests atonement. Uh, and, and that you recognize that you need atonement for your sins to be forgiven. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And so you see in that first line what faith in Christ looks like. Bringing the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land. And then in verses 2 and 3, like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, come to the land of Israel, or who is Israel now? Come to the church and seek advice in a shadow. Put your faith in Christ. This is a wonderful invitation. Come under him. Surrender to him. Seek guidance from him. Seek direction from him for every part of your life. And hide yourself under the shadow of Christ's church, hiding yourself under the shadow. That means joining in covenantal community, joining, becoming a member of that community, joining the church, becoming a part of the body of Christ. So now we have this gracious invitation to these Moabites who deserve death. They deserve damnation. They deserve to be condemned. uh, And the judgment is coming, right? Uh, There's no other way to escape this judgment other than by conversion, And in your true conversion, you bring a tribute lamb. That is what you do. That's the only way it can be done. Repent of your sins and take shelter in the church. Now, in verse 5, put your faith in Christ. That's what verse 5 is telling us, essentially. And, And look, I'm not trying to overlay... Too much, too much New Testament over this. I believe this is true. I don't think this is an overstatement at all. Uh, you know, we don't give people in the Old Testament enough credit for uh, not knowing how salvation works, right? People in the Old Testament could not be saved unless they consciously and intentionally put their faith in Christ. That unless they put their faith in Christ, they'll be lost. That was as true then as it is today. And they knew that. They understood that. Nothing has changed in that regard. Um, In Hebrews 11, in the Hall of Faith, here's an example. It says that Moses chose the reproach of who? Of Christ as greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And so you have Moses who, in his mind, consciously uh, chose to side with Christ rather than to side with the prince of this world. Well, in Isaiah 16, verse 5, that's what God's telling them because now you have this messianic prophecy. And, and he's telling them to put their faith in a messianic Davidic king who is going to bring this salvation that God is now offering to them. Look at verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. God is telling them to put their faith in the Messiah. And when they do that, here's Isaiah's telling them what's going to happen. Here's what the Messiah is going to do. He is going to have a throne, and that throne is going to be established in steadfast love. And now you have a clear reaffirmation here. You know, he's really making sure that the Moabites hear him and understand what he's saying by saying this again. He is repeating what he said already uh, because he's already said it in another place in Isaiah. He said it in Isaiah chapter 9. 
And we've gone over that a few weeks ago. Go ahead and look back at Isaiah chapter 9. Let's, let's look at the first time he said this. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Very familiar passage of scripture. It says, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So he is reaffirming here the good news. This is a gracious invitation of the Moabites. He's saying, put your faith in Christ. Come back to God. Repent of your sins. Tear down your idols. Join the covenant community. Because there is a great king coming. He's coming. The Davidic king is going to come, just like he promised. And his throne is going to be established in steadfast love. Now, when we picture a throne, uh, a throne symbolizes quite a few things. One of the things it symbolizes is sovereignty, right? Sovereignty. It's a symbol of reign. It's a symbol of rule. Uh, There's a Messiah coming that's going to be a king. And he's going to sit on a throne. He's going to have sovereignty and he's going to have rule over the nations. And the foundations of his throne on which he rules will be his steadfast love, his covenantal love, his faithfulness. Or as we would say, his grace, his grace. And to say in the the Old Testament that Christ's throne is established on steadfast love is to say in the New Testament is to speak of the reign of grace. Amen. I'm grateful for the reign of grace and his steadfast love in our lives. Christ's reign is a reign of grace because he sits on a throne of steadfast love and of mercy and of God's grace. And to say that Christ's throne uh, sits upon steadfast love or God's grace is to say that none of these aspects of salvation is dependent upon any of us. Isn't that good news? Right? God's throne, Christ's throne, is not established by man. It's established by God's grace and only God's grace. And because it's not established by man, it's not dependent upon man. And therefore, it cannot be overthrown by man. So that's the impact of the establishment of this throne of steadfast love. It's God's grace that has established it, that has set it up. And it's God's grace that's going to keep it going. And, and no man individually, no collective man, no state, none of those things anywhere on the face of the earth is going to be able to overthrow this kingdom. Amen? Amen. Notice what else it says in verse 5. It says that a judge is going to sit on this throne. And so the throne is uh, a symbol here of of rule and reign. It's also a symbol of judgment. It's a judgment seat. And and to call Jesus Christ a judge right here is to say that he is going to come and he is going to do completely and perfectly what the judges in an earlier time in Israel uh, only did part of the way. They only did that in part. They only did it typologically. They only did it symbolically. Uh, in part, right? The judges with the small j's were raised up by God and they were clothed with God's spirit to bring revival in the land. Anybody, y'all remember the book of Judges? You remember that, that, that reign of all of these different judges? Were they perfect judges? Not by any means, no, no. So they only did in part what the true judge is going to do in full. And so they were to be used of God to bring revival so that Israel would turn from her apostasy and so that she'd be saved from oppression. Well, all of that was a type. All of that was a shadow. It was it was symbolic of what the judge is going to do. And from where we are, what the judge has already done. Right. The Lord Jesus Christ, he has judged fully. He is going to judge, has judged completely. 
uh, in, in that he himself uh, would not symbolically judge, but he is in reality going to judge. He is in reality going to save us from our apostasy. He is in reality going to save us from the oppression of sin and of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. So by regeneration, by his life, uh, by his death, by his resurrection, all of that he does in full, uh, in reality, what these judges of old only did in part. And so here is a judge that actually brings about and accomplishes in full what those judges only did in part, symbolically. Uh, And it's important to point out that this throne of Christ is said to be a judgment seat uh, because in the New Testament, that's what the throne of Christ is called. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. We'll look at that in a couple of places. Uh, 2 Corinthians. Go ahead and turn there. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. The throne of Christ uh, isn't only the place from which he rules. It's also the place from which he judges and he delivers his people by defeating their enemies. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, there it is. The judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Romans 14.10 says this. You don't have to turn there. It says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So in 2 Corinthians, we hear uh, judgment seat of Christ. In Romans, we hear judgment seat of God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in church uh, hearing that these two judgment seats were two different things. Any of y'all ever heard that before growing up in dispensational doctrine, that, that the judgment seat of Christ was a different thing than the judgment seat of God. Uh, That only Christians are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and non-Christians are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Well, in 2 Corinthians, it says that all of us Christians are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But in Romans, where it talks about the judgment seat of God, uh, who's Paul talking to? Is he talking to non-believers? No, he's talking to Christians. Right. So, uh, so, so the judgment seat of Christ and the judgment seat of God uh, must be the same thing. And so <clears throat> uh, I believe the old, the judgment seat of Christ, the way it was taught was uh, Jesus would judge believers on the, the works that they've done after they were saved. Um, and then that's basically, you don't get condemned at this judgment seat. You just get, you know, differing amounts of rewards. And there's some truth to that, but these two judgment seats are not different. They're all the same, right? Maybe it was only me that heard that, but, uh, so these things are the same. Uh, and, uh, not only will this throne have a judge on it, but this throne, uh, this judge will sit on the throne in steadfast love. He's going to sit in steadfast love, faithfulness, truth, dependability, certainty, that he is going to fulfill everything that he has promised. Every word that he spoke is going to come true, and he's not going to let one word of his promises fall to the ground. Okay, so now here's how um, the nature of his reign is defined. And a, a judge will sit in steadfast love on it in the tent of David or from the family or the dynasty of David. And we see in the Gospels in the New Testament that the Lord Jesus Christ is the promised son of David. He is that guy. He is the one that Isaiah is prophesying about. And the reason the New Testament makes such a big deal about the fact that Jesus is the son of David and the reason the prophecies of Isaiah Uh, foresee and foretell of a Messiah who would be of the dynasty of David is because of God's covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised some things to David. He promised three things to David. Number one, he says, I'm going to build myself a house on earth. I'm going to build myself a house on earth. Now, of course, historically and partially, that house was built through Solomon, right? But that was just symbolic of the house of God. Who is the true house of God now? The church, church. exactly. Exactly. That was was another type. It was another uh, symbol. And so God says, look, in the future, this from Isaiah's point in time, I'm going to build a place where I'm going to live on earth 
to, to be my home base, to be my home on earth. And he made that promise to David. He said, David, you're not going to build it. Uh, I'm going to build my own house, right? And second, he said that I'm going to build on this earth a kingdom. So we have a house and we have a kingdom. And this kingdom is not going to have any limitations and it's going to overcome every kingdom that comes into opposition to it on the face of the earth. Okay, so a house and a kingdom. And the third thing that God promises David is that he is going to do it through a man. He's going to do it through a man, through a Messiah, who is going to be your son, David, and he's going to be my son. So he is going to be a divine human savior. He is going to be a God-man savior. And so whenever you think of the Davidic covenant, Whenever you think of God's covenant with David and you think of Jesus said to be a son of David, we have to understand that it's these three promises that the Lord Jesus uh, is going to cause to come true, that all of that comes true in him. God promised David that his seed will build a house on earth where the people can come and where they can fellowship with him, right? Uh, That his seed will build a kingdom on earth that will overcome all of the kingdoms that go against it and that his seed who would build that house and that kingdom would be God and man, truly God and truly man, and would be both the son of David, the son of man, and he would be also the son of God. So what were those three things? promised him a house, that God was going to build his own house, a kingdom, and a God-man savior. And so we have a clear reference to this fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is this Messiah. And this throne and this person who sits on the throne in steadfast love, this judge who is going to reign in steadfast love, is none other than the seed of David himself, who's going to fulfill all the promises of God. Amen. All of God's promises have their yes and amen in Christ. So let's keep looking here. Look what he's going to do on this throne in verse 5. Now, this is, this is a harder thing for a lot of Christians to really believe. Um, and that's why I think we have all these chapters of, of doom and judgment in Isaiah to help us to believe God's promises of what he's going to do because it seems so hard for us in our time to believe it. Check this out. Verse 5. He will be one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So it says he will seek justice and be swift to do righteousness. In other words, Jesus is not going to allow, he's not going to permit. This is hard for a lot of people to believe, a lot of Christians. Uh, Christ is not going to allow wicked men who hurt his church to pass unpunished. And he's going to do it swiftly. He's going to do it quick. That's what's difficult for us to believe, right? That all of these enemies of God out there uh, doing all of this harm to the church, all of these evil people who are doing the church all this harm and are bringing all this violence and who are assaulting God's moral order, uh, every single one of them are going to be punished by God, and he's going to do it quickly. Now, we don't believe that he's often going to do it quickly because you know we're ordinarily a, a microwave sort of people, right? We want things done now on our timetable, right? Uh, And so this doesn't seem very swift to us, right? I mean, think about it. How long has, look how long it's been. We've been praying against these enemies of the church now for years, right? I mean, what do you mean swift? Like, what are you talking about, right? Humanism and the consequences of enlightenment thought have been spreading over our land for the past 200 years, assaulting the church, Uh, and overturning God's moral order, and God says that he is going to punish these enemies? I mean, when? When's it going to happen? It's been 200 years. It doesn't seem very swift to me, right? Well, of course, we need to understand that God is not accountable to our definition of swift. God is not being swift according to what you think swift is or to what I think swift is, but he is being swift according to what he defines as swift. And what he defines as swift is reality. That's what it really is. So God is not accountable to us. 
He's not accountable to you. He's not accountable to me. So when he says, I'm going to be swift in seeking judgment and in performing all of these, this righteous judgment against the heads of his enemies, we must believe him. Amen? We must believe him. And the next time you're in a hurry uh, and you want God to do it now, uh, you know, get him now. You remember that you are being swept along by an emotional temper tantrum and you're not submitting to or trusting in God's promises. Now, let's look at two words here. Uh, it says he's going to seek justice and he's going to be swift to do righteousness. Now, the words justice and uh, righteousness. These two words are brought together over and over again in the Bible. We see these words paired up constantly in Scripture. Uh, go to Genesis 18.25. We'll see uh, the first time that we see these two words paired up in a passage. Genesis 18.25. It says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So check this out. We have the word righteous, right? And we have the word just, which is, of course, related to the word justice. And we have the word judge, and so another word here for justice in the scriptures is the word judgment. Judgment and justice go hand in hand. Uh, a judge is one who renders what? Judgment. Justice. Right. Uh, so uh, now let's go to Psalm 96, verse 13. Let's go there. Psalm 96, verse 13. Here's another pairing of these two words. We'll learn more about it as we see more scriptures here. Psalm 96, verse 13 says, Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So there are both of these words in one sentence. Judge, justice, righteousness. Uh, I think there's an even clearer one. Psalm 9, where it says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. So in speaking of Psalm 9 here, it's, this is all about God's justice and God's righteousness. And so these words, when we look at them, are pretty synonymous. Okay, They pretty much mean the same thing, uh, justice and judgment and righteousness. That all, but although they mean pretty much the same thing, they don't all together mean the same thing. Okay, There's a lot of overlap. And each of these words have an important point, an important emphasis to make. OK, um, you know, the word justice or judgment, uh, you know, that's a process where God discerns good and evil and renders a verdict and he acts on that verdict. So whenever you see the word justice or judgment in the Bible, uh, we need to remember these four words. OK, these four words. And uh, I have to thank an old pastor for helping me out with this because this really helps us to understand uh, how God judges uh, all throughout the scriptures, how judgment works, the process of judgment. And it's these four words. It's discrimination, vindication, destruction, and salvation. Every time the Lord Jesus Christ judges, this is the process by which he does it. He discriminates. He vindicates himself. Um, he renders a verdict, he'll destroy the enemy of God, or, and he'll uh, uh, save the people of God, the people who are being oppressed. And so whenever we see the word judgment or justice in the Bible, we need to think of these four words, uh, discrimination, vindication, destruction, and salvation. So what do we mean by discrimination? You know, the word discrimination gets a bad rap these days, right? Uh, anytime we hear the word discrimination, it's usually, uh, you know, some negative connotation, right? So, but discrimination can be a good thing, right? It all depends on the direct object. It all depends on what we're discriminating, right? Right, absolutely. Absolutely. We make choices every day. We discriminate and delineate things all the time. And God does the same thing. He especially does it when he judges, right? That's what judging is. And so God discriminates. How does he do that? Well, he always discriminates against evil, and he discriminates for good. 
He discriminates against evil and, and discriminates for good. In other words, God is not a neutral third-party observer when he judges. He's partial, for sure. Right? He, he never takes a neutral stance between good and evil. God always discriminates for good, and he discriminates against evil. And whenever his people, whenever his, his name, his social order, his law order, has been assaulted by the enemies of God, God at that point is going to vindicate himself. He's going to vindicate himself. And he vindicates himself by doing two things. By bringing destruction upon the wicked and bringing salvation upon the righteous. And so God discriminates against the evil uh, for the good and he vindicates himself in the face of the assaults against his people by destroying his enemies, destroying the evil people who plot and rage against him, and by saving and delivering and exalting those people who were persecuted by the evil people. This is how the Lord Jesus executes justice in the world. Okay? Now, we looked at justice, we looked at judgment. What about righteousness? What's that word mean? It's a really important word. Righteousness and the standard of righteousness is the standard by which Jesus judges. Okay? So, so Jesus judges, but he judges according to righteousness. There's a standard of righteousness by which he judges. And, and, and where is the righteousness of God laid out by which Jesus judges? What shows us what righteousness is? You tell me. What shows us what righteousness is by which Jesus judges? The what? The what? The, the law, right? It's the law, right? The law of God. The law of God does that, right? And so that is the standard by which God judges. And so, you know, it could be said, well, is God accountable to a law that's higher than him by which he must adhere to? Uh, is there a law even above God? That he, uh, there's a transcendent law above him by which he must adhere to? Uh, is there laws that even God has to live by? No. 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 No, and I'll tell you why. Uh, there is a law that God strictly adheres to, right? He never breaks it. He never breaks the law of God. He never goes against the law of God. He never compromises the law of God. Uh, and he acts in anger at anybody and everyone who opposes the law and transgresses the law. And that law is the law of his very character. It's, the law is his character. The character is the standard to which God adheres. So is there a law higher than God that by which he must adhere to? No. No, he's just acting in character. He's acting according to who he is. He cannot act out of character. God can never act out of character. Uh, that's what it is to say that God is just in, re in reference to himself. The standard that determines all of God's actions, the standard by which he defines and distinguishes good and evil in the world is not some law above him that he's subject to. No, the, it's the law in his own character. The highest law in the universe is the holy, righteous character of Almighty God. And God strictly adheres to that law, and he stands against anybody who goes against that law. Uh, it's the highest standard of righteousness by which the laws and standards of men are to be judged. Now you can see why righteousness is the standard for judgment. That's the standard by which God determines what and who he's going to judge and what and who he's going to save. It's his own character. It's, and the Lord Jesus, the judge that sits on this throne of the dynasty of David, who rules in steadfast love and kindness, he is the fulfillment and the realization of the justice for judgment and the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ is the revelation of and, and he's in uh, the righteousness of God, right? Let me show you some ways in which this is true. You probably already know a lot of these, but number one, the Lord Jesus Christ is the incarnate revelation of the perfect character of God. Uh, 
Jesus in Scripture is called the image of the invisible God, right? He's God in human flesh. Uh, he, he dwells among us. He tabernacled among us. And, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, right? Full of grace and truth. So we can see the Lord Jesus Christ is the incarnate uh, embodiment and revelation of God's holy, righteous character, right? So if we want to know what God is like, who do we look to? We look to Christ. He shows us what God is like. We always look at Jesus's life because Jesus never acts out of character and he never acts in any way contrary to the character of God. Uh, number two, he is the embodiment of the judgment of God. We want to see what the judgment of God looks like. Who do we look to? Christ, right? So it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through him that God discriminates. He discriminates against evil, discriminates for good, right? Uh, what was one of the reasons he even came to earth? Now I know to live a sinless life, to die and rise again. I know that. But one big reason he came to earth was to separate the wheat and the chaff, right? That's, dis that's a discriminating role, correct? To discriminate between sheep and goats. Uh, then, then what is he going to do once he makes that judgment with, with the wheat and the chaff? What does he do with the chaff? He throws it into the fire, right? Uh, to be burned. And what does he do with the wheat? He gathers it into the barn. Right? So the Lord Jesus Christ is the revelation of the judgment of God by which God is going to discriminate between good and evil, by which God is going to vindicate himself against that evil, and then he will destroy the evil from off the face of the earth, and then he'll save the good and gather them into the barn. God does all of that through Jesus Christ. He does all of that through him. And thirdly, the Lord Jesus Christ puts all the people, all people into a pressure cooker situation. You ever been in a pressure cooker situation where you have to make a decision? Like something terrible is going to happen unless you make a decision and the decision you make could change the course of the rest of your life. Haven't you all been in those type of situations? Sure, sure. Well, Jesus Christ puts all people into that situation. Uh, he forces everybody to take a side in reference to who he is and to his authority and, and, and all of that. As one, you know, as one person put it, said they, they, they that take the gospel to themselves must either live by the glory of the gospel or perish beneath the judgment of the gospel. So the Lord Jesus puts everybody in a situation where a decision has to be made. Either they're going to continue in their rebellion against him or they're going to submit to him. And if they refuse to submit to him, they're going to be judged. Fourth, in the, in the gospel of Christ, God imputes and gives his righteous character and justice to believers. That's great news. He imputes his righteousness. He gives his character of Christ to us. You know, what does the word impute mean? Imputation. What does that mean? To impose upon? Do what? To give to, like impose upon? Or? Uh, sort of. It it's basically means to put into the account of, right? So when you get paid from your employer, they impute money, funds into your account, credits to your account, right? I mean, that's what justification is, right? When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? Christ pays the debt that you owe by his death on the cross, and he imputes his righteousness to you by his living of the, a sinless life and a righteous life here on earth, right? And it was a life that was lived in our place. It was lived vicariously for us. And that life perfectly reflected the character of God so that when uh, we, we receive Christ as our Savior, we can say, God, I cannot offer you uh, my own life, but I can offer you the perfect life of Jesus in my place. And God accepts that. And so God imputes to us, he credits our account with the very character of Christ, just as if we have lived it out ourselves. Amen? That's great news. And then uh, in the new birth, when we're born again, he does even more than that. Uh, he, in, in reality, gives that character to us, right? He declares that we have that character based on Christ's merit and his righteous life that he lived in our place but now that we're born again, he is now going to really give that character to us. 
So by regenerating us by the power of the Holy Spirit and and taking away our hearts of stone and and giving us a heart of flesh, a heart that has God's law, God's character written upon it, filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, So now Christ is a judge. Now we're able begin to we can begin to to judge in the place of Christ uh, here on earth as his vicegerent. Isn't that cool? Now that we begin to have the law of God written in our hearts, we can also be able to discriminate rightly because we will know and we'll have the law of God uh, and his law written on our hearts, right? We'll also be able to pronounce judgment using God's word so that God can be vindicated. And we can also pray imprecatory psalms on God's enemies so that God will either cause them to repent or perish in the way. And so that God's people can be delivered. And so we can also be judges as Christ is, our supreme judge. He gives that to us. That's great. Then lastly, the reason that Christ's righteousness and Christ's character is imputed to us is because God judged Jesus in our place. And so we can see all of these aspects of God's judgment or justice and God's righteousness, which were fulfilled and that came to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Isaiah says here in uh, chapter 16, verse 5. Amen? This is great news. And now, this brings us to verses 6 through 12. And after this gracious invitation in verses 1 through 5, we see that he returns to the theme of judgment and destruction. And he tells us that it doesn't look like Moab's going to repent after all. And because of that, this proud and stiff-necked nation is going to be destroyed because of their refusal to take God up on his invitation to repentance. Look at verse 6. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Now, seems like it was pretty common knowledge that Moab was an arrogant, prideful nation. It seems like everybody in the world at that time knew that. Uh, And this brings up a good point. Uh, Each culture, each nation, we all sin, right? Every nation has its sins. But it's also true that each nation and culture also has its own particular sins uh, that set it apart from the sins of the other nations, right? Now, the United States has all sorts of sins that it's engaged in, right? We have all sorts of sins that we're, we're engaged in, and other nations have all of their sins. But there's usually one or two sins that are really highlighted in a culture, national sins, And that the Bible teaches that there are such things as national sins, distinguishing sins. Well, I believe the the distinguishing sins for the Moabites was their arrogance. It was their pride. They were famous for being arrogant. Uh, They were well known by everybody as being prideful, arrogant, boastful people. And it was because of this pride, because of this arrogance, that God destroyed him. So he says in verse 7 that... It's good and right that you wail and that you grieve for what's about to happen. Look at verse 7. It says, Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. Mourn, utterly stricken, for the raisin cakes of Kir Herazeth, for the fields of Heshbon language, and the vines of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches which reached to Jazir and strayed to the, de- to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibma. So now here we have God's promise to destroy what was once a beautiful nation, a glorious nation, uh, and, and a very beautiful part of the world. Uh, And God says, in my judgment, I'm going to make this nation not beautiful and plentiful, but ugly and desolate. I'm going to clear it, clear it to the ground. And, you know, you're known right now for your riches and for your glory and your beauty. And your vineyards grow everywhere. Uh, Prosperity and abundance galore. 
Sounds familiar, right? Now I'm going to destroy these vineyards. I'm going to destroy all the things that you're so proud of. And I'm going to cut your pride down right where it stands. And it seems that God is really just as sad about this as Moab should be. It's an interesting part of Scripture. Uh, He's sad to be cutting the vineyards down and and tearing up all of this beauty and abundance. Uh, You know, he's heartbroken that the vineyards are going to be destroyed. And God grieves over it. We can see uh, how terrible his judgment is going to be. He knows it. He sees it. And he grieves over it uh, on this nation that just refuses to repent. Check this out. Look at verse 9. This is really interesting. It says, Therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazir for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Alela, For over your summer fruit and your harvest the shout has ceased. And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyards, no songs are sung. No cheers are raised. No treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore, my inner parts moan like a lyre from Moab. And my inmost self for Kir Herazeth. So we can see the level of grief on Isaiah's part. You know, he says in uh, chapter 15, verse 5, he says, My heart cries out for Moab. In verse 9 of chapter 16, he says, Therefore I weep with the weeping of Jaser. I drench you with my tears. Verse 11, Therefore my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, and my inmost self for Kir Herazeth. I mean, you can feel the emotional turmoil of Isaiah. He is moaning and he's grieving over what God was about to do to these prideful enemies. Uh, You know, that should tell us something. That should tell us what should be in our hearts when it comes to God's enemies. You know, there should be both joy that God is uh, rendering judgment, but there should also be sorrow at the destruction of our enemies. We should rejoice when we see God's enemies destroyed, but... When we consider all of the destruction and the devastation, the death and rape of their women, the suffering of the little children, the pain, the anguish, and the suffering that God's judgment brings as he makes things right again in his judgment, if we have any bone of sympathy in our bodies, uh, we should be grieving for them. And we should be mourning over the consequences of rejecting Almighty God, the great and terrible. And, And... There'll be a sensitivity and a tenderness as we witness God's enemies being destroyed. Seems kind of strange to think of it that way, huh? To be rejoicing yet sorrowful over the destruction of God's enemies. Now, I admit, as I was reading this passage, I was getting confused as to exactly who was talking. Uh, Who is the I in this chapter? Is it Isaiah or is it God? Well, in verse 9, it seems like it's Isaiah, but in the last line of verse 10, what do we see? It says, I have put an end to the shouting. You were shouting and rejoicing in gladness over how prosperous your land is and how great of a people we are, but I have put an end to that shouting. Well, Isaiah didn't put an end to that shouting. God did, right? This is God talking. So here you have Isaiah as God's mouthpiece who is so united and one with God that God can use the word I through the mouth of Isaiah and at the same time can be expressing his own feelings. That's so interesting to me. Isaiah can express his own thoughts and at the same time speak as if he were God. You know, God says, I'm going to bring judgment upon this wonderful, beautiful, bountiful, plentiful people that shouted with joy and delight in the vineyards, and I have put an end to that shouting. I'm going to put an end to it. Well, Isaiah didn't do it. Isaiah didn't destroy the joy in Moab. God did it. And the same God who said, I put an end to the shouting, says, I will drench you with my tears, and I will weep with the weeping of Jaser. So not only do we learn something about the heart of Isaiah here, we learn something about God's heart as well. That there is a 
a sense of compassion in the heart of God for the exact same people he is destroying in his judgment. And we thought we knew God, right? <laughs> you know, God is bigger than the doctrines of grace. <laughs> much bigger. Much bigger than, than any sort of human theology and, and, and our categorizations of God. How can it be that God can say, I drench you with my tears because of the compassion that I feel for the people that I'm destroying? This is our God. Well, the chapter ends with a eulogy. We're about to wrap up. I couldn't figure out a way to make this a happy ending, so (laughs) we're just going to have to leave it at that. It ends with an eulogy lamenting this nation that has died. And and it says in, in verse 12, it says, And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. And here we have an urgent situation. Moab, they know they're in trouble. Uh, they know uh, that, uh, that the enemy is coming to destroy them. Uh, and so they're flocking to their temples now. They're going to their temples and their sanctuaries to pray to their gods that their gods will help them to be delivered out of this upcoming judgment. And what happens? Their prayers never make it out of the room. Uh, and absolutely nothing happens at all. So, you know, everybody... Everybody in Moab, this prosperous, wonderful, godly nation, lowercase g, they went to the church that they liked. They went to the church that they felt comfortable in uh, and and that taught the doctrines that they liked. And they prayed to the God that self-actualized them and, and made them feel really good and that this God would deliver them from the upcoming destruction. And absolutely nothing came out of it. No answer, no deliverance. The judgment still came. Why is that? Well, because they didn't submit to the one true God. They submitted to a God of their own imagination. You cannot find refuge in what you like that serves yourself. You can only find refuge in the living God. And you must submit to his terms and his conditions if we want to be saved from destruction. I mean, there's a ton of parallels here in Isaiah that we can just take from here put right on our country because we act a lot like Moab right now. We are prideful. We are arrogant. We have vineyards galore. We have prosperity. Uh, We have all of these things and we're prideful about it. My own hand built this wealth. Well, the very same thing could happen to us if our nation does not repent, right? So let's be a witness to that nation. Let's repent ourselves. Let's repent in our own hearts. Let's repent in our own households and churches. And then we'll pray and ask for God's mercy to to change this nation. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Y'all have a good night.